All right, hi everyone. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, your science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, and I'm your host. So today's episode is going to be a short one. I've got a lot to do in terms of editing my previous interview with historian Ingrid Okert. That's going to be about the intersection of science and Star Trek all the way back when Star Trek started in the 1960s, long before I was born. So that's going to be my next full-length episode of Strange New Worlds, and I also need to prepare my next interview with writer, podcaster, and filmmaker Rebecca Pierce, and I'm going to be speaking to her about racial justice and Star Trek. So that's one you're definitely not going to want to miss either. So let's just get straight to it. Today we are responding to the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, titled Die Trying. So as always, there are three segments, think, feel, and question. And let's start with think. So one of the special treats that I have watching this season of Star Trek Discovery is knowing that Star Trek Discovery has dedicated science advisors this season. And they've even been on this show. We've been lucky enough to have had Dr. Aaron McDonald, an astrophysicist, and Professor Mohammed Noor, a biologist, right here on Strange New Worlds. And so when I watch these Star Trek Discovery episodes as they come out each week, I get this extra little fun of trying to be able to find the little tidbits, those pieces of dialogue or plot points that I think Dr. Aaron McDonald or Professor Mohammed Noor helped contribute and craft. And it turns out, just a few days ago, Mohammed emailed me. Just a friendly email, you know, checking in, saying hi to a colleague, telling me that he's been listening to Strange New Worlds and really loving the content that I've been putting out for Season 3. So thank you, Mohammed. That really means the world to me. But in this email, he hinted that in Episode 305, the episode that we're responding to today, there might be something special in that episode from a biological point of view, and that he'll be diving deep into that topic on his YouTube show called BioTrekkie Explains. And I've put the link to that show in our show notes. You should totally all subscribe so that you can watch his awesome videos about previous Star Treks and also get notified when his new episodes are released, which explain the science of season three, not just from the point of view of a scientist, of a biologist, but also from the point of view of a science consultant for the show. And I just can't wait for that. But the reason why those episodes are still forthcoming is because Mohammed had to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, which means that he can't talk about anything Discovery-related until the show is over in January 2021. Which means that really, in this email, he only vaguely hinted that something in Episode 5 might be of interest. Nothing specific. Definitely didn't break his NDA and definitely didn't spoil anything because if he did, I would be ranting about that right now because I hate spoilers. But Mohammed was very nice and basically said, you're going to love Episode 5. And I did. And I had so much fun trying to spot what he may or may not have put in this episode. And I've come down to two possibilities for this biological phenomenon. 
One is the chimeric strain that the holograms interrogating Emperor Georgiou said that all mirror universe Terrans have. All Terrans are duplicitous by their biology. All biplicitous bioduology. Neither ology has anything to do with it. You may not be aware, but in the past hundred years, we've discovered a chimeric strain on the subatomic level in the Terran stem cell. Silly hollow. You cannot rattle me by introducing a completely fabricated biological component to my nastiness and inherently bad behavior. I'm extremely wicked, even for a Terran. So I guess between the 2250s and 3189, further study has been done of mirror universe humans, and their DNA was sequenced, and a chimeric gene was found. Now, a chimeric gene is a real-life thing. It's basically a genetic mutation whereby two originally separate sequences of DNA have combined to produce a brand new gene. And I guess in the Star Trek universe, this tiny, random, accidental mutation might explain why Terrans are so similar to us, but so malevolent as well. And I would bet you an Eagle Moss starship that this is what Professor Noor was hinting at, because number one, he's a geneticist who studies evolution, and number two, these chimeric genes have been researched in his favorite subjects, Drosophila, otherwise known as the fruit fly. So I'll leave it to Muhammad to tell us more about that on his YouTube channel. And instead, today I'll focus on prions, which is the other bio tidbit from this episode that honestly may have originated with Mohammed as well. Dr. Eli says they have four hours left at best. Is there a diagnosis yet? Cascade failure of the nervous system brought on by misfolding proteins, something called prions. They're not contagious, but there's no cure yet either. So prions actually play a main role in the plot of this episode. The crew of the Discovery basically has to go out and try to find a cure for a prion disease. So a prion is basically a misfolded protein. Oh gosh, what's a protein? Okay, a protein is a string of amino acids, which are a class of building blocks of life. As much as I hate that term, building blocks of life, but that's a rant for another time. Anyway, there are like 20 different amino acids that life on Earth uses. You can think of them as, I don't know, different words. And if you string together enough words, you get a whole paragraph a functional collection of words. And a protein is essentially a paragraph of amino acids, right? It's just the string of maybe like hundreds of amino acids. And once you get this string of amino acids, they'll actually start to twist and turn and form funny shapes like helices and sheets. And those bigger shapes will twist and fold upon themselves too. And basically, what you get is this awesome three-dimensional masterpiece. And it's actually the three-dimensional structure of this string of amino acids that gives proteins much of their functionality so that they can, say, capture other molecules and catalyze interesting chemical reactions. Now, it turns out that if there's an error, this protein is going to fold the wrong way. And sometimes that error in the fold can actually make this protein interact with 
other proteins and cause those proteins to fold erroneously too. So you essentially get this spreading of misfolded proteins, each infecting the next. It's like a zombie apocalypse in the protein world. One protein misfold can suddenly cause a chain reaction, or an autocatalytic reaction, as scientists like to call them. If this sounds like pure science fiction, it's definitely and sadly not. Prions are responsible for many neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's. Basically, where an infectious zombie protein army runs wild and out of control in the brain, interfering with normal neurotransmission. Interestingly, a small sector of scientists have been studying the idea that prions could have been responsible for the origin of life itself. If you think about it, the way that prions spread themselves by infecting other proteins is kind of like an act of replication. And if a certain prion was not just infectious, but also useful— at performing other tasks, rather than being purely destructive like those that cause deadly diseases today, maybe it could lead to an evolving system of prion-like life forms. Every time a prion infects another protein and forces it to become a prion, that's a transfer of information, information contained in the structure of that amino acid chain. So some find this prion-first hypothesis a very attractive hypothesis for the origin of life because it essentially circumvents the famous chicken and egg paradox of which class of molecules came first, proteins made of amino acids or genetic polymers like DNA and its close cousin RNA made of nucleotides. In modern life forms, DNA and RNA code for protein formation. But proteins are the machinery that make DNA and RNA. So you see, each is necessary for the other. But a common theme for origin of life scenarios is to simplify living systems to just one of these classes of molecules, and often it's to just RNA. So one leading theory for the origin of life is that RNA came first and did the job of both storing information, and performing protein-like functions. Basically, a genetic polymer that did both roles. But the thing is, chemists have toiled for decades trying to create RNA from scratch. And it turns out it's just super hard. On the other hand, creating amino acids, those building blocks of proteins and prions, under early Earth conditions, is quite a bit easier, and tightly folded chains of amino acids might actually be more stable to degradation under harsh conditions too. So the prion hypothesis for the origin of life says that maybe it was all proteins at the beginning, where strings of amino acids formed prion-like proteins which passed information along to each other through infections and which could do some of the cool functions that proteins do today. Now, of course, none of this is certain. We have very little information about what exactly happened at the origin of life. 
We don't know if it was RNA at the origin of life, or prions at the origin of life, or a mixture of the two. In the emergence of life field, it's exactly like Admiral Vance said with regard to the mystery of the burn. We have more theories than ships in the fleet at the moment. The Federation never found enough data to support one over the other. Which theory do you believe? Doesn't matter. Unless you have a new piece of evidence and it's gone unnoticed for 120 years, we have far more immediate concerns. Challenge accepted. And understood, sir. Nonetheless, I find the origin of life a very compelling and fascinating scientific problem, one that I hope we solve, just as I hope that Burnham et al. figure out what happened at the burn. Just one last note, for what it's worth, Star Trek does tend to side with the prion hypothesis, at least judging by what Q showed Picard in the TNG finale, All Good Things. You see this? This is you. I'm serious, right here. Life is about to form on this planet for the very first time. A group of amino acids are about to combine to form the first protein. The building blocks <laughs> of what you call life. Okay, let's move on to the next segment, feel. What did I feel from this episode? Well, the overriding emotion was a flood of happiness at rediscovering the Federation. So I watch these Discovery episodes over Zoom with my friends. I basically have a window open where I've got this Zoom room and a bunch of friends, and we all press play at the same time on our respective machines and watch the episode together and then discuss it at the end. And as we were flying into that monstrous hidden shipyard or whatever it was, the headquarters of the Federation in the 32nd century, and the USS Voyager NCC-74656J came on screen, I took a glance at my Zoom window and all of the little boxes of my friends had each of them grinning like a Cheshire cat from ear to ear. It was just incredible to see. The USS Voyager. <laughs> Jay, that's the 10 generations of evolution. 11. Love to hear those stories. And for me, you know, I, I've been thinking about what this feeling is best equated to. And the only thing that I can come up with right now is that it was sort of like the feeling of visiting an old campus as an alumnus of that school. Like, there's this simultaneous desire for wanting everything to be the same and a desire for wanting everything to be updated and different. Like, there was that nostalgia of seeing Voyager and wondering, oh my gosh, does the crew of this ship know the legacy of that first Voyager, no bloody A, B, C, or D, as intimately as I do? And then at the same time, there's like, show me what you got, show me what you've been working on, show me all of the updates, that joy and elation at seeing things that are new, like neutronium hole plating and detached warp nacelles. Ah, oh, I just loved it. It was so much fun. Okay, finally, my question for today. Another big part of the plot of this episode 
was the disco crew convincing Admiral Vance and the rest of the Federation to trust them. And this is very difficult because Starfleet of the 32nd century has no record of Discovery's mission to jump through time, to save the galaxy and all organic life from an entity called Control. They have no record of the displacement-activated Spore hub drive, and apparently they also have no knowledge of the mycelial network. So all of that information has been lost, indeed purposely lost, as we found out at the end of Season 2. And this made me wonder, was there anything that people knew 930 years ago from now, so I guess that would be the year 1090, was there anything that people knew in the year 1090 that we do not know today? You know, as a scientist, I'd like to think that science has helped us progress far beyond what was known back then, which was probably a time full of mysticism and just erroneous belief based on spurious correlations. But who knows? Maybe someone, somewhere, in that distant past, knew some truth about mathematics or medicine or mushrooms that died along with them, and that we have yet to rediscover. I'll leave it up to your imaginations to decide what that might be. And until next time, see you out there.